a lot of times, and, and this is something that you don't pick up on unless you understand that so much of Paul's work is implementing the reforms of the Council of Jerusalem, right? That very often mm-hmm. when he's talking about works, he's talking about circumcision, right? When he's talking about the, he's not talking about like, um, helping the poor. Like there's, no, no. uh, so often these references that, you know, I thought by works he meant like, helping the needy, when in fact he means, like, snippage. Snippage. Hello and welcome to another iridescent and effervescent episode of On the Journey with Matt and Ken. I'm your host. Well, now, actually, Ken's the host. We we haven't decided who's the host. We just know that it's a two-headed animal here on the journey. Ken was a Baptist pastor. I'm, uh, well, I was an evangelical in the Wesleyan Arminian camp. He's the pastoral care director for the Coming Home Network. I'm the outreach director for the Coming Home Network. And here we are. Visit us at chnetwork.org for more on that. And Ken, we've been right smack dab in the middle of the story of Martin Luther and how he came to the positions that he did. And now that we've dropped mm-hmm. a, a lot of information about the narrative aspects, uh, we started last episode to really get into the doctrines that came out of Luther's experience. And we're doing a lot more of that today. Yeah, that's right. So... <laughs> <laughs> you know, lengthy, lengthy, strange pause. Um, yeah, we're doing that today. The, the uh, series that we're doing now is titled Luther, The Rest of the Story. And we are not doing, I just want to say to Luther scholars out there and people who love Luther, we are not doing a detailed treatment of Luther's entire life or all of the situations he went through or all of his doctrinal devel- development. We're, we're, we're talking about Luther, that is some of his life experiences and mainly what led him to um, the two main doctrinal issues that came out of the Reformation, really the material principle of the Reformation, which is justification by faith alone, the doctrine of salvation, and what is referred to as the formal principle of the Reformation, that is sola scriptura. So right now we're talking about um, sola fide, and in our last episode, Matt, we, we told the story in brief of how Luther came to the discovery of this doctrine of justification by faith alone. Um, which we know was refined some by his partner, Philip Melanchthon. And so I'm describing the doctrine that came down from Luther through Melanchthon, through the other reformers, and has become the classic Reformation doctrine of justification by faith alone. That is, that justification is a legal concept. Justification is the legal crediting or imputation of Christ's righteousness to the account of the one who simply believes. So it happens all at once. The moment someone looks to the cross of Christ in faith, his righteousness is credited to them as though they have been, as though they have been clothed in his perfect righteousness, and you're saved. Okay? It's done. Okay? Luther described this doctrine as the article upon which the church stands or falls. This was the critical doctrinal issue. Calvin referred to it as the hinge upon which the door of all true religion swings. So the same kind of thing. Anyway, last week we talked about how this came together. In this episode, Matt, I want to step away from Luther's story a bit to summarize what led me as a Protestant minister to abandon this view of justification by faith alone. So that's what we're doing today. So are you ready? If you're ready, I have seven steps that I'm going to try to summarize succinctly and quickly, and uh, and uh, that's it. All right, well, I'm ready to go because, uh, again, just to to be clear, like there's this perception among Catholics that this is what all Protestants believe about how someone is saved, and the mm-hmm. fact of the matter is that this is a uh, this is what those who come through the you know the part of the Reformation that involves Luther and Calvin tend to believe. So uh, some of these were big issues for you that were not as big of issues for me. So um, right. that'll be right. kind right. of interesting to parse as we go through it. 
Yeah, I you know I still refer to this, and I think accurately I refer to this as the the, the classic Reformation doctrine of justification, as it came down from Luther, Melanchthon, Calvin, Bucer, the other reformers. Although yes, Protestantism is a big tent, a gigantic tent, and so there are all kinds of variations w- within that. Um, okay, for me then, step one was this, and I, I present this as a kind of story, really, in seven steps. Step one for me was noticing that throughout the Old Testament, in the stories of men and women and their relationships with God, obedience is always presented as a condition, as something required uh, for those who would receive the blessing of God, and this is never conceived of as a problem. Let me elaborate, but that's step one. Why would this be important? Well, it's important because at the very heart of the classic Reformation doctrine of justification, salvation by grace, is a particular line of thought, almost a a, a logical syllogism in a way, Um, and it goes like this. Justification must be by faith alone. You trust in Christ, it's credited to your account, you are saved. It must be by faith alone, because if I... If our obedience to any degree and in, in any sense were to come into the picture, into the equation as something required in order to be justified, then salvation, here's the logic, then salvation would not be all of grace. Then salvation would not be entirely the work of God. Then we would have in some sense contributed to our own salvation. We would have saved ourselves. We would have earned our salvation. We would have cause for boasting. Okay, this is a... Um, this is a line of thought that, that again, at least in the Reformed world that I came from, but in classical Protestantism, this is a line of thought that is felt to the very bones, okay? It seems to make sense. It seems to follow just logically. Well, I began to notice that in all the stories of the Old Testament saints, obedience is always required of them, and never does this appear to be a problem. You know, in other words, or by example, you know, Noah has to trust God, and he has to build the ark in order to be saved. And ne- never is there any sense that somehow Noah has, has, is earning his salvation and now has cause to boast. Abraham has to trust God, as you know, and he has to leave Ur of the Chaldees. He has to follow God. He has to trust and obey. Moses and the Israelites, they have to trust God, and they have to leave Egypt they have to cross the Red Sea. They have to follow the pillar of cloud by day and fire by night. They have to fight battles. They have to trust and obey all the way to the promised land in order to inherit the promise. Obedience, in other words, if I could sum this up, is always a condition for receiving God's promised blessing in the Old Testament. And never is there a hint that somehow this means that these saints in the Old Testament have earned their own salvation by their works, and they have reason to boast. In fact, to focus in on Abraham again for just a, a moment, Abraham is conceived in the Bible, in the New Testament, as the very father of faith. He's the father of faith that we're to imitate. And yet, when his life is summarized, when the final reason is given for why God is going to keep his covenant with Abraham, and he's going to multiply the children of Israel and make them like the stars of heaven— Notice what the focus is. I'm quoting from Genesis chapter 26. Sojourn in this land, God says to Isaac after Abraham's death. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you and will bless you because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. In other words, to sum up this point, throughout the Old Testament, I came to see faith and the obedience that flows naturally from humble faith, they're viewed as two sides of the same coin. They are never viewed as being somehow in tension with one another as they are viewed within the Protestant conception of justification. Anyway, this is what originally got me thinking, Matt, that maybe there was something off or something wrong with the way in which I had been taught or the line of thought that, that I had imbibed. So even to go further than that, you know, the idea of faith, reward, and then obedience. I mean, in Hebrews 11, when it's talking about Abraham's obedience of faith, it says, um, you know, that Abraham, by faith, even when he was past age, and Sarah 
herself was barren, was unable to become a father because mm-hmm. he considered him faithful who had made the promise. But then a couple of verses later, after talking about Abraham at the end of this hall of faith, it says, all these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance. So even <laughs> Abraham, the full reward promised to him, is right. not even received after a lifetime of obedience. So, right, right. I mean, it's a big thing to, that's uh, entirely, to try and process. But. That's, that's entirely true. But, but I guess the critical issue here is that faith and the obedience that flows from faith are viewed as being necessary, as being required in order for him to receive the promise. And, and in Abraham's okay. case, a lifetime of obedience. Yeah, yeah, a lifetime. And never seeing the fulfillment. Although, you know, he saw the fulfillment in an earthly sense. He did he did inherit from God. He was blessed by God. Okay, well, step, step two builds on this, Matt, because step two for me was coming to see that this Old Testament pattern, faith, resulting in obedience or leading to obedience, resulting in God's blessing, that this pattern, it, it wasn't a pattern that, that is reversed in the New Testament. In fact, it continued, I saw, right on through from, Ma- from Matthew to Revelation. And again, without there being a hint of concern that somehow this compromises the grace of God. And I, I give a couple of illustrations. You read through the Gospels, and Jesus is constantly speaking of obedience as though it were required of those who w- would be blessed. He talks about faith, but he talks as often about obedience. If anyone would be my disciple, he must take up his cross and follow me. You are my friends if you do what I command you. If you keep my commandments, you will remain in my love. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. In fact, I think that is one of the reasons that my experience was that Protestant pastors preach a whole lot more on Paul than they do on the Gospels, because the Gospels are just filled with these kinds of statements. But it's, it's the same with the Apostle Paul. Romans 2, to those who by patience in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, God will give eternal life. Or Galatians 6, For he who sows to the flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but he who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And and how do we do this? How do we sow to the Spirit? Paul immediately tells us, let us not grow weary in doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. So again, obedience is everywhere in the New Testament described as a condition for receiving the blessing of eternal life, of you know remaining with Christ and entering into eternal life. And just like in the Old Testament, Matt, never is this presented as though it were a problem. And what I mean by that is never do we find Jesus or Paul um, feeling the need to quickly clarify when they make these kinds of statements, you know, say, oh, but of course, you know, I don't really mean that you have to take up your cross and follow me in order to be in my disciple. Or I, I don't really mean that you have to obey me, you know, you have to keep my commandments. Don't worry, I didn't mean that, I'm, I'm just saying something else. You, you don't find any expression of the need for them to water down what they've said or to clarify or explain quickly that that isn't what they really mean, nothing like that. And, and then there's Hebrews chapter 11, which, which you referred to a moment ago. In Hebrews 11, here we have the inspired author of this New Testament epistle speaking of Abel, of Noah, of Abraham, of Moses, of Samuel, and another, and, and a number of other New Testament, I mean, Old Testament saints, who each of them, the author of Hebrews describes how each of them trusted God and did what God commanded them to do, and, and how they then received the promises, or like Abraham, they, they had to wait even after death. But he present, here, here's the thing, I realized he's presenting these people as models for New Testament saints, New Testament Christians, to imitate. Um, in other words, he's he's basically preaching to the New Testament Christians at the time, and he's saying, I want you to take these Old Testament saints, these men and women, as models, so that you too will trust God, trust Christ, and you too will do what he tells you to do, and you too will receive the promises. This is what he's preaching, and this is what I preached as well. And so it's it's like the question came to me, Matt, 
why doesn't the author of Hebrews say, you know, here are a number of men and women who were living under the law and they had to obey God in order to receive his promised blessings at the time. Make sure you keep them in mind as examples of how God doesn't want you to relate to him now. Because after all, we're New Testament, we're under grace, and we don't have to obey God in order to receive the blessing anymore. And I, I, I'm just thinking, why didn't I say that in my sermons either? Instead, I mean, I held these people forth as models to imitate. Why didn't I present Daniel and David and, and Solomon and all these people? Why didn't I present them as illustrations of how God doesn't want us to relate to him now, now that we're under grace and we're not under law? Right. And even just the word reward, uh, <laughs> as it's you know used by our Lord, like, why would you be rewarded, especially when Jesus says, you know, yeah. whoever gives a cup of cold water to somebody, that action of obedience, that action of charity will have some sort of like a reward. Or or if you pray in your closet uh, rather than praying out in the public square, right? Or if you give secretly instead of giving publicly, you know, he's referring to things that you do that are good, that should be done, that will be rewarded. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it's – you have yeah, to work is. really hard actually to explain it. it you, have to, you have to go out of your way to say, well, Jesus is actually – he actually means the opposite of what he's saying. I mean, that's what you – that's the kind of work you have to do otherwise. Yeah, and the interesting thing is the word reward that you're referring to in Scripture, you know, when we Catholics use the word merit – when we say that you by giving a cup of cold water you would merit something from God, that's like somehow viewed as anathema, absolute anathema. And yet the word reward, we mean the same thing as reward by it, by the word merit, you know, it, you know. It, but the word reward is all through the New Testament. You're right. Okay, so step one then was seeing this pattern in the Old Testament where obedience is required in order to receive God's blessing. And never is it conceived as something bad. And then in the New Testament, obedience being required, and never is it viewed as something bad. Again, never is it viewed as though this will cause boasting. In other words, when when Jesus says to the blind man, go and wash in the pool of Siloam and you will see, and the blind man trusts Jesus, and he goes, he's obedient, he does what Jesus tells him to do, and he comes up seeing Never, there's no conception in the narrative and no conception, I would say, in the entire New Testament that somehow now this blind man actually earned his healing. He had part of it. Jesus did part and he did part. And now this blind man has cause for boasting. You, you understand what I'm saying? Never is this line of thought, which, or the, this line of logic, almost this syllogism, which was really embedded in the classic Reformation conception of justification. Uh, never do you find it. Okay, but then the question arises then, doesn't Paul, a a number of times in the New Testament, doesn't Paul emphasize we're justified by faith in Christ, not by works, lest any man should boast? Doesn't Paul present that exact, you know, classic Protestant syllogism? Well, this leads to steps three and four, which I'm dividing up for clarity's sake. Step three was this, Matt. It was coming to see then, wrestling with this really, how can obedience be good in this sense and required, and how can obedience in this other passage be just totally rejected, not by works, lest any man boast? And it was coming to see, it was coming to see that there are really two kinds of obedience, two kinds of works that are described in the Bible, one that is required by God and one that is rejected. Okay, let, let me let me elaborate. Okay. Because that might sound like a slippery little something, a sleight of hand that I'm putting in. But no, it's totally biblical. First, there is the kind of obedience that's illustrated in the lives of Noah and Abraham, Moses and the Israelites, the saints of Hebrews chapter 11. It's the kind of obedience that flows from humble faith. These people trust God and they, and, and based in their humble faith, they do what God tells them to do. It's an obedience that flows from humble faith. And this kind of obedience is treated in Scripture as being virtually interchangeable with faith. Abraham believed God, and he obeyed. He left. Noah believed God, 
and he built an ark. Sometimes these saints can be praised for their faith. At other times, they can be praised for their obedience. The two are interchangeable. Okay, but then there's another kind of obedience described in the Bible that is totally rejected. We can see this kind of obedience described in Isaiah chapter 1, where God is saying to his people, quoting from Isaiah 1, I have had enough of your burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed beasts. Bring no more vain offerings. Your incense is an abomination to me. Your new moons, your appointed feasts, my soul hates. And, uh, and of course, these are all things that God commanded them to do. I was about but to say, uh, you're reading from the them. passage where God abolished sacrifice and festivals forever, and from that point forward, there were no more sacrifices or festivals required by God after the time that Isaiah 66 was recorded. No, of course not. Of course. He still commanded no. festivals and sacrifices. So there must be a problem with the way in which they're obeying, in other words, because these are things God commanded, and yet now God says, I hate them. You know, they're an abomination to me. We see this kind of obedience, too, in Isaiah 66. This is a passage that that, that meant a lot to me in, in understanding this. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house which you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? Well, God commanded them to build a tabernacle for him. And God commanded them to build a temple. And yet here he says, hey, look. Well, God didn't say, hey, look, but heaven is my throne. The earth is my footstool. Where is the house? In other words, I don't need you to build me a house. So now there's something wrong in the way that they intend to be obedient. Again, quoting, all these things my hands have made, and so these things are mine, says the Lord. But this is the man to whom I will look, he that is humble and contrite in spirit, and who trembles at my word. There's the, there's the humility again. But he who slaughters an ox is like him who kills a man. He who sacrifices a lamb is like him who breaks a dog's neck. He who presents a cereal offering, like him who offers swine's blood. He who makes a memorial offering of frankincense, like him who blesses an idol. These have chosen their own ways, and their soul delights in their abominations. So, again, as I read this, you realize these are all things that God instructed the, the children of Israel to do. These are all things he commanded them to do, including building the tabernacle, including building the temple, offering all these These are all sacrifices. things that Jesus himself did as an observant Jew when he was yes. walking on the face of the earth. And so you have to wrestle with, why is it that in this situation, God responds to them as though he's holding his nose and he cannot stand this stuff? And I think that the key is the word, uh, would be a contrast to the words humility and pride. Because here you have an obedience being described that does not flow from humble faith. Remember when he said up here, it's to this man that I will look, the one who is humble and contrite and who trembles at my word. This is an obedience that doesn't flow or that isn't flowing from humble faith. It's an obedience instead that's flowing from pride and that views itself as almost working for God as though you, they were God's employees as though they were somehow helping God out by doing these things, and that God ought to pay them a wage and be very grateful to them for their sublime, you know, for, for their supreme service or something like that. It's the attitude that's epitomized, I think, when John the Baptist speaks to the Pharisees and Sadducees of his day, and he says, remember, remember, they came out to be baptized. And he says, Do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham for our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children to Abraham. So to encapsulate this step, throughout the Old Testament, throughout the New Testament, there's a contrast being drawn, but it's never a contrast between faith and obedience, humble faith and the humble obedience that flows from it. It's not a contrast in the, uh, between those at all. It's a contrast between humility, actually, and pride. It's a contrast between those who love God, trust him, and walk in his ways, faith and obedience, and those who don't really love God, don't really trust him and walk humbly in his ways, but instead are saying to themselves, I am the greatest. You know, I am a descendant of Abraham. I am the right sort of person. 
I bear the circumcision, uh, the sign of the covenant of circumcision. I make sure to tithe mint, dill, and cumin. God is grateful to have me. <laughs> you see, it, it, it's a it's a whole different attitude. I came to see there are two kinds of obedience in the Bible, one that is required and one that is totally rejected. Well, and you use the word to, presume there. Yeah. Yeah, and, and of course, this is what the Catechism teaches about presumption. In paragraph 2092, it says, There are two kinds of presumption. Either man presumes upon his mm. own capacities, hoping to be able to save himself without help from on high, or he presumes upon God's almighty power or his mercy, hoping to obtain his forgiveness without <coughs> conversion and his glory without merit. And that's what you're dealing with there, is, mm -hmm, is presumption mm -hmm. in the classic sense of, you know, presuming that... You know, we have Abraham as our father. We just say these magic words and we're, you know, we can appease God yep. because we flip the right levers and God's saying, no, yes. it doesn't work that yes. way. Yeah, and, and the way that this distinction between these two kinds of obedience, the way this answers the, the question about Paul is step four in the story that I'm telling. Because step four was, for me, for me, was coming to understand that this is the contrast Paul has in mind when he speaks of how we are saved by grace through faith and not works of the law, lest any man should boast. Okay, this is the distinction Paul has in mind. And let me um, elaborate on this a bit. And I, I have to summarize this only briefly, but here it is. Think about Paul's ministry, Matt. Think, think about everything you know from the New Testament, the book of Acts. In Paul's ministry, Paul was dealing with certain Jewish believers who typically had been from the Pharisees. They were believers, Jewish believers, who were insisting that in order for Gentiles to be saved, they needed to receive circumcision and they needed to keep the Mosaic Code. Essentially, they needed to become Jews. They needed to become Jewish proselytes and become Jews. This is what led to the first council of Christian history, the Council of Jerusalem, described in Acts chapter 15, where we read in verse 1, but some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Okay, this was dealt with at the Council of Jerusalem, but this is what this is a recurring theme. This is something Paul was dealing with throughout his ministry. And in this historical context, in this theological context, I came to believe that when Paul says, when he makes these statements, we are justified by faith in Christ, not works of the law, Paul isn't saying, hey, while Noah had to trust God and do what God said in order to be blessed, while Abraham had to trust and obey, while all the saints in the Old Testament have to trust had to trust and obey, we don't. <laughs> He's not saying that. He's not trying to say, hey, Christians, we're saved by faith in Christ. We don't have to do anything. We don't have to obey like the Old Testament saints had to obey. He's not saying that. What he is saying is, in order to be saved, you do not have to be circumcised and become Jews and keep the Old Covenant law of Moses. That's the historical context in which he makes the, these statements. And in, in fact, here's a few supporting things. This is why I found that in the exact context of Paul's letters, where he speaks most strongly about this need to be justified by faith in Christ rather than works of the law, we find him talking constantly about the circumcision party, about those who are trusting in their flesh, about those who are not true Jews, but Jews according to the flesh, those who are mutilators of the flesh, those who are trying to get you to accept circumcision. He's constantly talking about that in the very context in which he makes this strong um, contrast. In fact, this is why, Matt, in the single most classic passage on the subject, Romans 3.28, where Paul says, and I'm quoting now, a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. This is why we find him immediately, in the very next verse, asking the rhetorical question, or is God the God of the Jews only? You know, I mean, that is powerful if you catch it. It is so powerful. He has just said, we are justified by faith in Christ, not by works of the law. And then rather than saying, 
what I mean by that is that you don't have to love God and obey him. You don't have to be like Noah. You don't have to be like the saints of Hebrews 11. Instead, he says, or is God the God of the Jews only? Which, which alerts us clearly to the fact that what he has in mind is that issue. Do Gentiles have to be circumcised? Do they have to become Jews? Do they have to keep the law of Moses in order to be saved? In all these passages, Paul isn't saying that Christians don't have to do anything to receive God's promised blessing. He's saying that we yeah, are saved as a matter of fact. by faith in Christ, not by becoming Jews. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I was just thinking about the way that Paul ends the the book of Galatians, um, just to kind of highlight some of this after going through this diatribe. And again, you know, you a lot of times, and and this is something that you don't pick up on unless you understand that so much of Paul's work is implementing the reforms of the Council of Jerusalem, right? That very often mm-hmm. when he's talking about works, he's talking about circumcision, right? When he's talking about the, he's not talking about like um, helping the poor, like. There's uh, so often these references that, you know, I thought by works he meant like helping the needy when in fact he means like snippage. So and the other thing is so often when he talks about the flesh, I would have thought that he's talking about fleshly (coughs) temptations or me trying to do things with my own body to earn salvation. Very often when Paul's talking about the flesh, he's talking about snippage, right? He's talking about circumcision. (laughs) But I just want to key in on (laughs) on how Paul ends yeah. the book of Galatians, because I think it's so fascinating. Because um, he goes on, to, he's saying, and this is at the end, he says, see with what large letters I use as I write to you with my own hand. Uh, he says, those who want to make a good impression outwardly are trying to compel you to be circumcised. The only reason they do this is to avoid being persecuted for the cross of Christ. Not even those who are, this is it, not even those who are circumcised obey the law, yet they want you to be circumcised that they may boast about your flesh. Right. Yeah. May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Um, so he's saying these people who are concerned with works, you know, the works mm-hmm. by that he means circumcision. They're not doing the works that they should be doing, which is um, obeying the actual, you know, code of what it means to like live yeah. as a Christian. They're doing right. they're doing the one kind of work, but they're not doing the other kind of work. Paul's Paul's making a distinction to close out the book of Galatians that there's two different kinds of works being talked about here. Yes, yes. Yeah, and, and I think that's epitomized when he makes statements like, well, in, in 1 Corinthians 7, 19, he says, he, he, he says this, he goes, look, it is not being circumcised or being uncircumcised that God cares about. He says, what God cares about is keeping the, is keeping the commandments. So there, there's where... There's where Paul actually draws a contrast between circumcision and obedience. Yeah, okay. not to so get again, too much more graphic than that, uh, but just to close it out. With your snip. I mean, yeah. with, with this, you know, he says, finally, no, no one caused me trouble after going all this about like the works of the of circumcision versus the, the good works that we're called to do as Christians. He says, and let no one cause me trouble for I bear on my body the marks of Christ. Oh. Right? He's talking about like, you guys are all bragging about this one mark you've got on your body. You know what I've got on my body? The marks of the cross of Christ. Right? Yeah, <laughs> so Paul's like even making the distinction there. So That's powerful. Uh, yeah. That's why he talks about marks. That's why he uses the word. Yeah. Okay, so in terms of steps then again, step one, throughout the Old Testament, people have to trust and obey, and that's never portrayed as something bad that's going to lead to boasting. Throughout the New Testament, we're called to trust and obey. And again, that's not a matter that leads to boasting. Step number three was realizing, well, there must be different kinds of obedience in the Bible. There must be a good kind, the obedience that flows from faith. And there must be a bad kind, an obedience that flows from pride. The one is required, the other is rejected. And then this all comes together in Paul's historical theological context, where he's fighting specifically with Jewish converts who are saying, to be saved, you have to become a Jew. And he says, no, we are justified, we are saved by faith in Jesus Christ. And he includes in that obedience to him. They're they're flip sides of the same coin. Not by having to receive the sign of circumcision and keep the Mosaic Code. 
which the Council of Jerusalem was about. Okay, step five was this, and this one hit like a brick. Step five was when I discovered, Matt, that the, that the entire conception of justification that I had learned as a Protestant was brand new historically with Luther and Melanchthon and Calvin and them, that it, it had never been conceived of in the first 1,500 years of church history. And I learned this, ironically, from one of the most well-respected Protestant theologians in the world, Alistair McGrath, the Oxford professor. In his two-volume work on the history of the Christian doctrine of justification, when he gets to the section on Luther and the Reformation, he basically says this flat out. He calls the Reformation doctrine of justification, and in particular, what he has in mind there is the distinction being made between justification by the legal crediting of righteousness and sanctification, where the Spirit of God enters our life and changes us from the inside. When he says that this, that this distinction between the two that was made by the Reformers, he calls it a theological novum. And he says it had never been taught in 1,500 years of Christian thought. And, and then he strengthens that. He says it had never even been contemplated. That's the word he uses. It had never been contemplated at all. Now, the reason this was a crucial step for me, Matt, is that serious Reformation-minded Protestants view this doctrine of justification by legal imputation as being so critical. Well, it's the article upon which the church stands or falls. It stands or falls. It's so critical that you would doubt that anyone could be a true Christian who didn't understand it and accept it and embrace it. And anyone who would turn from that view of justification basically, ipso facto, proves that, that he or she had never even known Christ, had never been a Christian. And so it's held up as being so critical that you can't even be a Christian, really, unless you believe it. And yet, and, and, and also it's held up as being clearly taught, you know? It's like anybody can just read the New Testament and can see that this is what Paul's teaching, and yet no one saw it. Not for 100 years, or two, or three, or four, or five, or six, or a millennium, but no one saw it for a millennium and a half? St. Patrick didn't see it. St. Francis of Assisi didn't see it. I, I mean, Polycarp didn't see it. Thomas Aquinas. Thomas Aquinas missed it. Ambrose, Augustine, St. Teresa of Avila. Augustine missed it. All of them were living according to a damning system of works righteousness because they all thought that obedience was a part of what is required. No one saw it. I mean, think about that again. It's clearly taught in the Bible, so clearly taught now that 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 that, uh, that someone can say, "Hey, look!" Any you know, believer on the street can pick up the Bible and see that this is what the scriptures mean. Right. Yeah. It's perspicacious. No one saw it. No one saw it for fifteen hundred years, and so this to me was like a brick, as I said, uh, just in the forehead. Alistair McGrath's statement. And now I understand because I've had discussions with some Protestant theologians. I understand that they would dispute this and say, no, 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 there are hints of this doctrine here and there in the early history of the church. But it's, it's I, I, I can only give my bottom line here. It's very questionable. And, you know, and, and Alistair McGrath was able to say, no, it's never been even contemplated, okay? Okay, so leading to step six and seven very quickly, step six is this. This led me to want to go back and read the Old Testament carefully, think through the doctrine of salvation in the Old Testament to see if there was anything about this, I mean, any conception of justification as the legal crediting of righteousness. And examining the Old Testament, I found that it, this idea is just completely absent. In fact, when we read the prophets in the Old Testament, when we read what they have to say about the new covenant that God's going to make one day, through which he is going to save the world, okay, the new covenant that was instituted at the Last Supper by our Lord Jesus, when the prophets look forward and describe what God is going to do, they summarize it as he's going to make atonement for sin, a sacrifice of atonement will be made, sins are going to be forgiven, and he's going to change the hearts of his people so that they will be able to love him and keep his commandments. Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. The Lord your God will circumcise your hearts and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, in order that you may live. Wow, 
even that in order that you may live reminds me of that pattern. He's saying you have to trust God and obey him in order to live. Well, God is going to change your hearts. He's going to circumcise your hearts so that you will be able to trust him and obey him and live. Jeremiah 31, the same thing. Here's the classic passage. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. I will put my law within them. I will write it upon their hearts. I will forgive their iniquity and remember their sin no more. There is nothing in the law or the prophets, nothing in the Old Testament about how God will legally credit righteousness to the account uh, or to the accounts of those who believe. Is this not there in the Old Testament? In fact, what you get is uh, stuff like, well, <clears throat> the the whole notion of a new heart, right? A new, I mean, uh, replacing a heart of stone and giving you a heart of flesh, not painting a heart of stone so that it looks as though it is a heart of flesh, right? It is a regeneration. Um, it is... It, it, yeah. It is... A, you're re- you're referring there to, to Ezekiel 36, which I, I I thought to include, but I just thought it would be too long. But yeah, that's another great passage about the new covenant where God's going to wash away sins. He's going to take out... clean water. Uh, remove of course, the hearts image of stone. baptism. Yeah. He's going to remove the hearts of stone and give us hearts of flesh. He's going to put his spirit within us and cause us to walk in his ways. Again, so that we might live. The Old Testament teaching is... Atonement will be made, sins will be forgiven, and God will change his people and make them the kind of people who can trust him and obey him and receive the blessing. It's still faith and obedience. And step seven, the final step, is that this is the same thing in the New Testament, concluding that the evidence for the doctrine of legal imputation in the New Testament is really no better than it is in the Old Testament. Um, there's no time to go into the evidence in detail here, but but I'll just simply say this. I read very carefully a, a book that was written by John Piper, very well-known um, Reformed Baptist theologian and pastor, um, specifically on this issue. And the thing that was in my mind as I read it was the subtlety of the arguments he had to try to create from the New Testament from certain New Testament passages. The subtlety involved in the arguments that he had to make in order to have the New Testament teaching the legal crediting of Christ's righteousness was just mind-blowing. I, I found myself thinking, wow, no one could ever, if you're talking about the perspicacity of Scripture, no one would ever read the New Testament and just see this leaping off the page. He, he made arguments, extremely subtle arguments, but the thing that I want to point out here, I guess, in, in, in closing is this. Some, something that I learned at the time, it's that a growing number of Protestant New Testament scholars, a growing number, are admitting that this conception of justification as, as forensic, as a legal crediting or imputation of righteousness, is not taught in the Bible. A, a growing number of Protestant New Testament scholars. Here's what... Um, Here's what Robert Gundry, well-known New Testament scholar, wrote. The doctrine that Christ's righteousness is imputed to believing sinners needs to be abandoned. The doctrine of imputation is not even biblical. Still less is it essential to the gospel. And it's not essential at all. And then he says, the notion is passe, neither because of Roman Catholic influence nor because of theological liberalism. He's saying the idea is passe, and I'm not saying this because of the influence of the Roman Catholics on the one hand, or of theological Protestant liberals on the other hand. He says it's passe because of fidelity to the relevant biblical texts. Gundry is saying, I'm saying that if you really want to be faithful to what the New Testament teaches, the idea of imputation needs to be abandoned. It's not even there. And and it's not just Dr. Gundry. You got N. T. Wright, very famous New Testament scholar, very influential, and saying the same thing. You got James G. D. Dunn. You got many others. In fact, Gundry continues by saying this. He says other recognized scholars could easily be added to the list, and he's referring to Protestant scholars, so that in fact, it would not exaggerate. I would not be exaggerating to speak of a developing standard in biblical theological circles. 
This is something Robert Gundry wrote some years ago. He's basically saying, hey, there's basically a developing theological standard in Protestant biblical theological circles that this doctrine that was created by Luther, Melanchthon, Calvin and them at the time of the Reformation and, and was treated as the article upon which the church stands or falls, this uh, doctrine that Alistair McGrath says was never even contemplated for 1,500 years, they're, they're saying, come on, you guys, it's not even taught in the Bible. It needs to be abandoned. And they're admitting it's not even important. It's not even crucial. Well, it's the kind of thing that, uh, you know, very often when you're working with uh, people who come from this background, formed in this stuff, it's such a head game, right? The question of imputation and justification versus infused righteousness and all kinds of haggling over the forensic courtroom language uh, regarding this. Mm -hmm. This can very much be like a really... I mean, it's it can be something that takes a, a person who's interested in Catholicism, in every other aspect of Catholicism, but stuck in this whole justification thing because of all the forensic language. It can be a a very difficult thing for someone to sort through. But I'm so glad we did this particular discussion because we've done aspects of this discussion before, but did it in the context of what we've said leading up to this about the narrative of Luther's life. N Luther mm -hmm. um, is developing a situation where faith matters, obedience doesn't matter because, among other things, I mean, not to psychoanalyze the guy, but it seems like here's a guy who is obeying all that he can obey in the monastery to the point of extreme scrupulosity and asceticism and doesn't feel like it's working. So mm -hmm. what a relief to discover uh, within the text, if you read him in a certain way, that it doesn't matter if you're obedient. Um, a guy who feels you know, guilty about everything all the time, what a relief to discover if you read the passages a certain way that it doesn't matter if yeah. my heart is rotten at the end. I've got this member's jacket that I can wear, you know, and member's that I can clothe jacket. myself with, right? That that it that it's it doesn't matter that I don't feel like my heart has been regenerated. Um all I have to do is clothe myself, and God will look past it. Uh, I mean, you can see how discovering this, you know, would be a huge relief. Well, that by reading, by a certain reading of the passage, he can say, well, these things don't matter. These things don't matter. It, it, it certainly was a tremendous relief for Luther, as we saw in our last episode. Um, that's why he said it was like walking through open doors into paradise when he saw this. That before this time, when he thought of the righteousness of God, it filled him with hatred. And now he said it's so, the words are so sweet. He, he loved them. But yeah, you know, this idea of imputation, you know, which I've said a, a lot of times, this is so key. And, and this, this is exactly why, as you just said, people, Protestants who may be attracted to many aspects of Catholicism just cannot bear it because this line of thought is, is so clearly in the mind that if I look to Christ in faith and his righteousness put on as like a member's jacket is put on me and now I'm a member of the club and I'm justified and God sees me now from that moment on as righteous as, as righteous as Jesus himself and I am in and I am in, then salvation is completely, utterly the work of God. That, that's how they're thinking. And I, I sympathize with it. It, it. it makes sense. Then we have no reason to boast. Then we can say, all, all, it's all of God. He saved me. And, and we would never say, well, I, I had a hand in it or I had a part in it. Um, that, that's why they're so committed to that. That's really the thing at the heart of it. So that well, any conception it, of having to trust and obey just sounds like earning salvation. Well, and again, it's because of this whole forensic courtroom language that it gets all befuddled mm -hmm. there's also this concept and and it all kind of ties back to this idea of the sovereignty of god as though god has exactly one billion credits of glory and therefore if you do anything to cooperate you have stolen one and now he's down to 999 yeah <laughs> you know thousand nine hundred ninety nine. yeah bottles beer, of glory on the bottles wall. of glory on the wall bottles of glory on the wall but also it's I mean, it's, it's as preposterous as saying uh that you know, you're drowning mm -hmm. and someone throws you a rope off the side of the boat and you grab onto that rope. You don't get up on the uh, deck and then say, 
look at me. If it hadn't been for me grabbing this rope, y'all wouldn't have been able to save me. Ha ha. Like, look at how much I did to contribute to my own rescue. Like, it it would be preposterous. Um, and, And that's not that's not how Catholics talk about or think about what's happening in justification. Well, as I said a while ago, oh, well, I, I didn't say it, but I thought it. There's no way on earth that the man who went to the Pool of Siloam and received his sight is up in paradise right now, leaning up against a tree with his thumbs under his you know, arms going, I washed in the Pool of Siloam. Jesus might have done his Could part. Be, I but unblinded I myself. Yeah, I unblinded myself. I mean, there's, Jesus there's was no there. Way. Okay, but we all but know you who bring washed up out the eyes at the pool. Okay, here's here's the segue into next week. When you bring up Luther and you bring up potential motivations for his coming to this doctrine and how this doctrine relieved him of the stress that he was living in and struggles, well, what we're going to do next week is we're going to come back to Luther's story. And and I want to look at some of of what followed from this doctrine of sola fide, um, what followed in the church in terms of morals even, and uh, what was the practical outcome, what happened when this doctrine began to spread. That's what we're going to look at next week. Well, we'll look forward to that. Lots to, lots to cover still. I mean, we're a few episodes in, and I feel like we've barely started um, on, on how this goes. We haven't even talked about the, the ripple effects this has on the European continent and all the movements that spring off of this. I mean, there's just so much in this. It's impossible for us to cover it all. So please don't get mad at us in the comments when you say, well, but you didn't mention this, because some of you have gotten upset that we've left some things out but that's part of the process there's only so much you you're can always going to leave out i i would say if anybody wants to hear the series that we did or watch the series we did on sola fide it begins with episode 17 of on the journey with matt and ken and it goes on for some 20 episodes or so otherwise yeah, so if you want to stretch what you just heard into a lifetime then you'll go listen to that yeah devote your entire life to watching episodes of <laughs> on the journey <laughs> yeah I don't actually I don't recommend okay. that at all now that I think no, about I it. Um, but come visit us at chnetwork.org slash on the journey if you want to see previous episodes and dig in at whatever point you feel comfortable. Please also, if you're uh, in any kind of stage of the journey or looking for some support, um, Ken and I are part of an online community, so are a whole bunch of other people, and you can find us at community.chnetwork.org. Uh, you can also, by the way, support what we do by going to chnetwork.org and click on that donate button um, so that you can make sure that we have microphones and cameras and lights. Okay. Yes. All right, Matt. We'll see you again next week. Bye-bye. <laughs>